Well, we're going to continue with the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 7, beginning at verse 15. So let's just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come again to you as we seek the words of your Son and as we seek to live the life that is in him. We pray, Father, for your strength, that each of us might respond to his word and to his will, to be as him and to do your will and to be as you would have us be. Father, please give us strength in our internal struggles that we might overcome who we we tend to be by nature and that we might be like him. Father, because all our love and our desire is upon him and to be as him. Father, please strengthen us in our desire and therefore in our attempt to understand him and his word. For his sake we ask this. Amen. Well, Matthew 7, we have already looked at the the, uh, the first 14 verses here, and we mentioned that it's really, the whole theme is of judging, and of how to judge in the sense of being wise, and also not condemning, and the importance of that. And now the Lord in verse 15 says, beware of false prophets. So it's, it's clear that he, he doesn't mean when he says, don't judge, don't have an opinion. And that's actually one of the problems of this world, that it's void of judgment, that there's no black and white, there's no line drawn anywhere uh, anymore. And so he's not saying don't have an opinion about others. In fact, the New Testament is full of examples of where we have to do just that, to have an opinion, a godly, uh, biblically guided opinion about others. He says, beware of false prophets, pseudo-prophets, is, uh, is really what, uh, what the Greek means. A pseudo-prophet is someone who is not a prophet, but is faking it, but is appearing to be that. And they come to you, verse 15, uh, and the Greek means they appear to you in sheep's clothing. That is, dressed as the lamb, dressed as Jesus. So there were and are these people around, and and this is talking really about the, the Pharisees, because he says inwardly, verse 15, these people inwardly are ravening wolves. And in Matthew 23, several times, and in Luke 11:39, the Lord Jesus teaches that the Pharisees inwardly or within are full of unspirituality. So again, he has the Pharisees in mind. And I think he uses the language of prophets because this fits in with the Old Testament theme of false prophets and true prophets. And so the Lord is saying something pretty radical to first century ears, that these people who appear to be your spiritual leaders, who are within the body of God's people, who appear to be your leaders, these people are not. They are actually faking it. But he's been talking about not judging, hasn't he? And yet he says here, these people inwardly are like this. Now, I don't think that he intends us to judge inwardly. He clearly intends us to take seriously what he's been saying in the previous verses, that we are not to do that, and we cannot do that. So when he says, inwardly, they are like this, but you can tell them by their fruits, verse 20, I suggest in verse 20, by their fruits you shall know them. The emphasis is on the word you. He's saying, I look on the heart, as his father does, I know what they're like inwardly. You can't judge that. You don't look inside the, the heart of people, but you can tell their fruit. He says in, in 15 that these people inwardly are ravening wolves, and the Greek for ravening there definitely means uh, to extort. They're extortioners. 
And oddly enough, you find the same word in Luke 18, verse 11, where the Pharisee, who uh, stands there and thanks God he's not as other men, thanks God that he is not an extortioner, Luke 18, verse 11. But here the Lord says, inwardly, they are extortioners. But in his wider teaching, he says that they stand there and thank God I am not an extortioner. So the Pharisee didn't see his own sin. Now, this is really an essay in in the blindness of human beings to our own sin, is it not? That the Lord says inwardly, those people are extortioners, and the guy in the parable stands there and thanks God I am not. Thank you, God, I am not an extortioner. Now, this is the essence of self-examination, to try to see ourselves as he sees us. These people, then, are, are wolves, he says. And, of course, in Matthew 10, 16, we're going to read that he sent out his disciples as sheep amongst wolves. So the wolves he had in view were the, the Pharisees. And yet, these people appeared in sheep's clothing. And I think it's possible that in order to destroy the Christian movement, there was within uh, Judaism a, a group of people who pretended to be Christian, who actually weren't. You, you see this uh, in Galatians 2 verse 4, where Paul speaks about false brethren, like these pseudo-prophets, unawares brought in to spy out your liberty. In John 10 verse 12, the Lord says that he's like the shepherd who dies fighting the wolf in order to get freedom for the sheep. Now, who actually led to the death of Jesus? It was the Jewish leadership. So again, the wolves are the the Jewish leadership. In in Acts 20.29, Paul warns that wolves are going to enter into the flock. And I think that he had in view there uh, Jewish, uh, Judaist Uh, false teachers who were going to appear as members of the flock. And in fact, a lot of the major false doctrines of Christianity, the Trinity, the devil, and so forth, a lot of these ideas actually came, uh, believe it or not, from various strands of Jewish false teaching. You you look at my books, The Real Devil, The Real Christ, I've uh, outlined that. Now, he says, verse 16, you shall know them. And I said that he looks inwardly, and yet he says, well, you can't look inwardly. He spent the first 14 verses of the chapter saying that. You can't look inwardly, but you shall know them by their fruits. Now, the fruit, according to John the Baptist's teaching in Matthew 3, and the Lord is continuing here, John the Baptist's themes, uh, fruit was a sign of repentance. And I think what he's saying is that as he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, that spiritual fruit is obvious. Remember when he says a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And the point is, I think, that you cannot be a secret Christian. He's saying, if you follow my principles, it's going to be obvious for the whole world. Therefore, he's saying, look, if someone really is genuine, you will see their fruit. And also, if they're not genuine, you will also perceive that. Because by the very nature of following me, it has to be public. You cannot be a secret follower of the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. You can't be like that. It has to be public. It will be visible and it will be obvious. Therefore, you can't judge them inwardly. I I do that, the Lord is saying. But you can tell these people by their fruit. 
And he really emphasizes this point. You don't gather grapes of thorns. And you think, okay, you've made your point. He keeps on emphasizing this because it's obviously important to him. And he, in Matthew 12, 33, he says, again, a good tree has good fruit and a bad tree has bad fruit. So he sows the, the seed of his, his word, of his gospel, and that either brings forth fruit or it does not. And the fruit is obvious. Now, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, there's, of course, Paul's definition of this in, uh, in Ephesians and Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he lists a load of things, but he begins by saying love. And uh, you could argue that the fruit singular of the Spirit is love, and all the other things, patience, forgiveness, etc., are all uh, aspects, subheadings, if you like, under the, the rubric of, of love. And these people didn't have that. Now, thorns, of course, are associated with the curse in the Garden of Eden, and grapes are the, the fruit of the New Covenant. And he's saying you, you can't get grapes from thorns, nor can you get figs from thistles. And again, thistles are associated with the, with the curse in Eden, thorns and thistles, Hebrews 6, 8, that which bears thorns and thistles is rejected. Uh, and figs are associated with spiritual fruit. Later on in Matthew 21, 19, the Lord comes to the fig tree looking for fruit, doesn't find it. He's looking for spiritual fruit. So he's saying that the, the fruit of the transformed life will be so obvious that you can soon tell who's genuine, who's not, without having to do as he does, which is to look uh, inwardly. Now I have to say that in my experience at least, and I do believe in that of many, the life of ecclesias, of the body of Christ, of, of Christian communities, of believers, um, as we are meeting together in groups, etc., and associations and fellowships, the, the, all this goes very wrong because of a fear of false teachers. And so, therefore, how is it dealt with? Well, somebody writes a statement of faith and they write out a set of doctrinal propositions and, oh, this guy is a bit wrong on some point, and oh, she doesn't believe that, or he doesn't believe that, you know, like we do. He's a false teacher. Can't have him in fellowship. Now, the Lord is not, N-O-T, he is not making biblical interpretation in its finer points, or, or theology, if you like, the basis upon which we are to decide whether someone's a you know, false pseudo or, or a good guy. He's not doing that. He's saying, just look at their life. The fruit in the person's life is the proof. Forget about all the theology. He does not ask them to judge someone's theology if somebody claims to be uh, one of the Lord's people and is bringing forth fruit. It's as simple as that. If they are bringing forth fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit is quite clearly defined uh, for us later in the New Testament uh, as basically love in its biblical sense with all the, the things that go with love, then that person is genuine. And if they do not have that, regardless of all the true theology they may have, they're not the real deal. That's what he's saying. So, yes, we do need to sort out sometimes uh, who is for real, but the basis is, where's the fruit? And in all this argument about interpretation, about doctrine, this is wrong, that is right, he can't be here because he's got wrong ideas, she's got funny ideas, etc., etc. Um, 
the Lord does not give us a little a little red book. He doesn't give us a little uh, convenient summary of the theology of the Bible and say, now you go and judge people according to this. He says, look at the fruit. And he labors this point so many times. I grew up in a community where very often I heard it said about so-and-so, oh, she's a lovely person, oh, very Christian and all that, you know, oh, yes, she's very kind, very loving, very forgiving, but she's got a wrong view of the atonement. Well, the Lord is saying, yeah, she's got the fruit. I ask you to make your decision, judgment if you want, uh, on this person relating to their fruit. There is no indication here of going into theology as a source of testing people. And it, it can also be said, and one's seen this also many times, somebody can, can be living a very wrong life, with fits of anger and aggression and absolute nastiness, and people sort of ho-hum and say, mm, yes, but you know what? He's very zealous for the truth. He's got a good understanding of the truth, and they mean the doctrines of, of correct theology, and again, the Lord is cutting right through that and saying, that's not in or there. Where's the fruit? No fruit? Don't have him on your platform. It's as simple as that. Now, he, he says, verse 19, that any uh, tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is hewn down, is cut down. That is a present tense. Now, of course, uh, and it's thrown into Gehenna, but in a sense... Of course, that is only going to happen in the last day, which is when people are thrown into uh, Gehenna, this uh, figurative uh, place for, for destruction. But in a sense, judgment is going on now, from God's perspective. It's not that we rock up at the day of judgment and God, uh, like a human judge, is going to gather information and make a decision. No, we are now before God's judgment. We make the answer now. And there's a big theme of this, of judgment being in that sense ongoing uh, as, a, as a foretaste of the judgment that is to come. The Lord Jesus stands in Revelation 1.16 with the sword of judgment now going out of his mouth. But in Isaiah 11.4 you read about that being a picture of his future judgment at the last day. But we stand before him now. Like that, the ungodly, Psalm 1 says are already like the chaff that is being blown away. We know, Daniel 2.44, etc., that that's going to happen when the Lord comes back. But you see what's being said, that the essence of judgment is now, that we stand before the judge of all the earth right now, that any interaction of, of God and man is, in a sense, man coming before judgment in one sense. Verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father. So the contrast is between um, saying, Lord, Lord, in this life, and in that day being rejected, verse 22, many shall say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord, and being told that they didn't do the will of the Father. This is like the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, 30 and 31. The one says, I will be obedient, and he is not. He does not do what his father says, and the other one initially refuses his father, and then he does what the father wants. So,
So this fits in really with uh, the whole context here that we are to do his will and not simply say, Lord, Lord. In other words, there is a surface level spirituality and that's what he's getting at. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, verse 21, understand he means that in this life. Not everyone who in this life says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Because many will say to me in the future day, Lord, Lord, and they won't enter. So what he's saying is, your attitude to me in this life is the same as your attitude is going to be towards me at the day of judgment in the last day. So he's saying then that if, if our attitude now is Lord, Lord, we will use that same attitude, those same words, when we stand before him in the last day. So it's not as if the, uh, the, the drama of standing before the Lord Jesus at the day of judgment is therefore and thereby going to, to somehow make us flip out of the present attitude to Jesus that we have and get a new one, a real one. No, he's saying it's the same. If you say, Lord, Lord, to me now, though you're going to use those very same words to me in the day of judgment. Now, he's emphasizing here the need to do the will and not to simply say, Lord, Lord, to not simply have a Christian culture in which many of us are brought up. And for many of us, it is easier to remain within that uh, Christian culture uh, than it is to, to actually leave it. And the Lord is saying it's, there's a contrast between Lord, Lord, publicly stating our commitment to him as Lord and doing the will of the Father. There's an obvious connection there with Matthew 6.10. We pray, your will be done. Now, I mentioned earlier that that was so difficult for Jesus to pray in Gethsemane that it took him twice, it took him so many minutes to say that those words, your will be done, that the disciples fell asleep and it took him with sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, uh, to say those words. So to pray the Lord's Prayer, to pray, your will be done in my life, may I do your will, it's very difficult. Now it's so easy to pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. But it's not saying, oh God, you've got a will, please get on and do it, because that's sort of axiomatic, that God will do his will. What the prayer is, is asking God, for the strength, may I do your will. And for Jesus to pray those words in Gethsemane was extremely difficult and demanded his life. So then prayer to God is not, as it were, a stabbing in the dark, uh, whereby he has a sort of an unknown will to us. And we are making requests which we just hope coincide with his will. A bit like playing that game Battleships you remember uh, years ago but you know where the other guy's hidden his battleships and you call out uh, squares where you think that his battleship might be to try and hit it uh, now but this is not what prayer is like we are simply asking that we can do God's will and when you come to 1 John 5 14 which says in most English versions if we ask for anything according to his will he hears us that verse can be misunderstood, that we're sort of playing battleships with God uh, and stabbing him in the dark. No. 
according to his will. This is the Greek word kata. Kata, if we ask anything, kata his will, he hears us. And I would say that kata his will uh, could, could just as easily be translated in order to fulfill his will. So there you are, struggling as the Lord Jesus did in Gethsemane, to, to pray that his will shall be done in my life, that may I please do your will, not my will, but your will be done. And if we ask anything, catter his will. If we ask anything in order to fulfill his will, he'll hear us. So there we are in our weakness, desperately wanting to, to do his will and not our own will. And John says, if you ask anything according uh, to that will, uh, in order to fulfill that will, you will get it. So as I say, we know God's will. And it's not you know, shooting in the dark, stabbing in the dark, hoping that our prayer just comes to coincide with his will. No. So often he talks about the will of my Father in heaven, as he does here in 21. There's quite a number of verses where he talks about, uh, about that. And the idea seems to be that we here on earth can actually have this connection with him who is so far away from us in heaven if we do his will. And how do you know his will? It's expressed in his word. Now many, 22, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now this is pretty spooky because the Greek word translated many really does mean the majority. And there's no getting around that. You can look, check me out on that and look that up and uh, try and twist the Greek as you wish. But that is what it means. Now what are we to make of this? This is not what we want to hear. It's not what I want to tell you. It's not what you want to hear. But the majority of those who say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, I never knew you. Add to that, 1 Corinthians 10, the teaching of, of Hebrews 3 to 6, Romans, in fact, as well. Though quite clearly, if we say, statistically anyway, that we as the new Israel, as those who have passed through the Red Sea of baptism, that we statistically are more likely to get into God's kingdom than the Jews, that we are better than them, then straight away Paul and the writer to the Hebrews are saying, no, you totally have missed the point and beware lest you fall. In other words, their uh, collapse of faith in the wilderness after their Red Sea baptism is quite as likely to be for us. And we cannot say that we are better than them. Now, in that case, I mean, it was just a, a fraction of those who came out of Egypt who entered into the kingdom. It, it does seem to me on one level that salvation, although God wants everyone to be saved, in reality, in fact, only a very few will be saved. Which is so tragic because, uh, as the Lord keeps emphasizing, all you've got to do is say yes in one sense. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles, etc. So then judgment is not just yes or no. There is uh, an element of dialogue whereby the rejected during the process sort of talk back to the Lord and say, no, 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 don't you remember I did I cast out demons and, and so on. Now, no one in that day is going to be passive. No one is going to be shrugging their shoulders and say, yeah, well, I didn't want to be here anyway. Yeah, okay, Jesus, yeah, this is your judgment and your kingdom and all that stuff. I don't want to be here. Yeah, right, okay, see ya. No one is going to be passive. In that moment, 
there will be only one overarching emotion, and that is, I want to be in the kingdom of God. Now, if that is ultimately the destiny of each and every one of us here, that we finally will come to a moment where you are on your knees before the Lord, saying, please let me into your kingdom. That is how it should be for us in this life. So instead of having to get there by the process of, of judgment and rejection and the, the, the uh, specter of, of rejection in front of you, uh, you need to get there in this life. So then, <clears throat> they, they say that they had prophesied in his name. Well, it's well, tempting to look back in Matthew 7, and we've just seen in verse 15, beware of false prophets. The point is, though, that these people had done good works, apparently, publicly for him, and he says, I never knew you. Well, I think, although we don't have the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit today, I think we can, in outline terms, still get a message for ourselves, in that no matter how God may use you, the fact God uses you is no necessary proof that you are therefore and thereby going to be saved ultimately. I mean, Isaiah 10, God used pagan nations like the Assyrians and Babylonians. doesn't mean they're going to be saved. Very often in life, or quite often in life, let's say that, uh, we get a, a strong sense that God is with me. God meant this to happen. God used me. There is a God on the earth. He used me to do this, that, and the other. But, you know, that is no guarantee of final salvation. These people... Um, had done all these good works, but he says, I, I never knew you. Now, I think the point is that it was their sins of omission which cost them the kingdom. This is what you get in Matthew 25, 42 to 44, which is a similar passage, where these people will say, but, Lord, Lord, when did we see you thirsty and not give you anything to drink? When did we do this? Well, come on, you, this is mistaken identity. And he says, whenever you omitted to do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. So what he's saying there is it's the things you didn't do. Although you committed many public acts, the point is your sins of omission have cost you the kingdom. So don't underestimate sins of omission. And as a bit of homework, you have a think about what happened in Eden. According to the record there, the first person who took the fruit and ate it was Eve. And yet, by one man, Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world, and that one man is Adam. So Adam is clearly painted as the first sinner when, chronologically, if you like, Eve was the first sinner. Well, my answer to that is that actually Eve was not the first sinner. Adam was the first sinner, and the first sin was not actually eating the fruit. The first sin was a sin of omission. Now your homework is to go and figure what, what that sin of omission was. And just to make it a bit more interesting, it's to do with sex. So you're all going now, you really will all go and do your homework. Anyway, my point is that the Lord is condemning these people here because of sins of omission. And he says that he's going to profess to them, and the Greek word there in 23 could mean to 
uh, as Strong suggests, uh, to say the same thing, to agree, to assent. I never knew you. So eventually they come to, to see it from the Lord's perspective. Now, he says, I never knew you. And we rather would expect him to say, um, you never knew me. And why does he change it to say, I never knew you? I, I think it's because the whole thing is mutual. They never knew him, which meant that he never knew them. And he says, I never knew you at any time. It's almost as if he's saying, <clears throat> even if your knowledge of me, using knowledge in the Hebrew sense of relationship, even if your relationship with me was uh, on and off, there was never at any time a point when you knew me, and therefore I never knew you. In other words, his knowledge of us is proportionate to our knowledge of him. And the knowledge here, as I say, is not academic, it's not theological, it is in terms of relationship. And he says, go away from me, you who work iniquity. But uh, they've just been saying, but we did all these good works. And he says, but you worked iniquity. Now, to omit to do things, the sins of omission are actually a commission of iniquity. If you want an absolute example of that, when uh, they bring a sick person to the Lord Jesus, and it's on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, I'm going to heal him, and they say, ah, oh, you shouldn't have done that. He says, what's better? To kill or to make alive? To do good or to do evil? So then what he's saying is, if I had omitted to do that healing, I would have done evil. I would have committed evil. So then you that work iniquity, that this is really and truly how God sees it. This is the sin of omission. Now, Matthew 13, verse 41, those who do iniquity, the same word here, same words, will be gathered out at the last day. And yet here it says there will be many, there will be many who will be like this, the majority. Putting those two verses together, but here, Matthew 7, many will be in this position. The majority is what the Greek means will be in this position of saying, Lord, Lord, but not doing what, what he wants. Uh, and if you put that together in Matthew 13, 41, that those that uh, work iniquity or do iniquity will be gathered out of his kingdom at the last day, but we can't gather them out in this life. Putting that together, I would say that the impression you get then is that the church in this life could well be full of those who are in this category. Now, I hope that's not the case, but I'm just trying to be honest, uh, intellectually honest, expositionally honest with you. As putting those two verses together, that's a conclusion I came to. Now, in a lot of churches, because they disfellowship people pretty easy for you know, messing up a bit or not being committed enough, that may or may not be the, the reality on the ground, I don't know. I'm just putting these two verses together and you can put two and two together and see if you make four or six or whatever uh, out of them. Why I mention this is that very often people seem to lose their faith 
in God and in Jesus because of disillusion with the church. Now, this shouldn't be the case. If, first of all, we realize that actually the body of people who are claiming Jesus as Lord are probably not all going to get to salvation. That there's going to be the, the weeds sown amongst the wheat, which we want to get rid of, but which we can't. Now, if we start our spiritual journey like that, and don't forget, the Sermon on the Mount is, is an instruction manual for people wanting to come to Christianity. If you start your spiritual journey like that, with no great expectation of the church, then I don't think you will get disillusioned if later on she says this, they do that, they're clearly not very sincere, they're not committed, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. Well, you will have started your spiritual path with that full expectation, rather than, oh, wow, I found this denomination, I found this church, this ecclesia, that are so wonderful. And then there's the disillusion afterwards. The only one that we will not be disillusioned with is, of course, the Lord Jesus. So, verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, and he said that those who say, Lord, Lord, and don't do these things will be condemned, Uh, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And he concludes the whole sermon with these uh, parables about the two builders. So then, these sayings, I wondered if the Lord consciously had in mind the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because I've said that this is consciously presented as the, the manifesto of his kingdom. And I, I wonder if these sayings refer specifically to, to the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that uh, we must do them. Now, in the Lord's own case, his own doing of the Father's will, not my will, but your will be done, uh, led to, to the cross. That finally was, for Jesus, the outcome of living in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. And it is no less, in that sense, demanding for us. So then we have to ask, <clears throat> am I really sweating to, uh, to build this house slowly on a rock? Because, of course, it's going to take time. This is the whole point of the story. The guy who builds on the sand, he does it quickly. The guy who, who builds uh, on the rock, it takes him a long time. So one simple lesson from that is that spiritual growth is very slow. So don't be too disappointed if you feel that your spiritual growth is slow because the real thing is going to be slow. Now, I think that looking at Luke's record, he seems to imply that both these people build on the same, same land. It's just that one just dug into the sand and built his house. The other guy dug through the sand onto the rock. That is not quite so clear in Matthew's record, but it comes out clearer in, in Luke's record. That fits in exactly, seamlessly, with what the Lord has just been saying about, don't say, Lord, Lord, but, but uh, not do the things that I say. Building on the sand, surface level, this is saying, Lord, Lord, external appearance, external works, but not really getting it at all. The one who builds on the rock has got to dig down through the sand, through the dirt, 
through the dust and get to the rock. I think that's why <clears throat> spiritual maturity usually takes time after baptism, because you've got to dig through that surface level stuff, and God will guide you through that. God brings situations into your life uh, so that you, you realize this is all just surface level, so that you can get deeper and deeper uh, to the real rock. And who is the rock? Jesus. That the real essence of building is to get through all that surface stuff, the dust of the flesh and the sand and all that, and to get to Jesus personally. That is really what the doing of all these things is. <clears throat> the Lord is not saying, go and do these things in the sense of go and be very zealous in doing external works. Because he's just been saying that the man who says, Lord, Lord, and, and does all the external works, even miracles, etc., prophesying, teaching, miracles, etc., that this person may not be saved. That's all the, that's all the sand. The real doing of his sayings <clears throat> is to find him. The real doing of his sayings is, for example, to radically forgive, uh, to radically not be judgmental, to radically not fear what your audience may think of you, or your surrounding your group, or whatever. So then, we've got to hear and understand, according to Matthew 15, verse 10, here it's to hear and to do. So the doing, as I say, I, I would uh, put on a slightly more intellectual level, I don't think it means run around more zealously and do more, more good works, because he's just been saying the man who does all that is still not saved. The man who does his word is the man, Matthew 15, 10, who hears and understands. If you really get the point of Jesus as a person, and you find that rock, that is, that's it. You remember how the one-talent man, Matthew 25, 18, he digs in the earth and hides his talent and seems to expect that therefore thereby I shall be rewarded. So this digging around in the earth, we have to ask ourselves how much of our Christian life, especially the external aspect of it, maybe going to meetings, etc., appearing on internet forums, etc., whether how much of that is simply a digging in the earth. You've got to get through all that stuff to the rock which is Jesus. Interestingly, you know, he's saying you should build your house upon a rock. Who else is building a house on a rock? Jesus. On this rock, the rock of belief in him as the Son of God, on this rock I will build my church. So there is a, uh, a mutuality between us and him. Now, I've mentioned several times that the Sermon on the Mount is alluded to many times in the book of James, to the point that you could almost say that James is a kind of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And James would appear to have been one of the earlier letters that was written. Uh, and it's understandable that the Sermon on the Mount would have been the, the core document of early Christianity. And so he's commenting on it. Uh, and he says in James 1.22 about this idea of of not just hearing, but doing. He says, be doers of the word, and not only hearers, deluding your own selves. Now I think that that's extended, inspired reflection upon what we've just been reading here. That don't kid yourself, don't deceive yourself, that because you know the truth, because you've heard the word, that therefore that's enough. Hear and 
do. Just as the Lord has said, that the man who hears these sayings and does them is like the wise man building on a rock. And the man who hears and does not is the one who's digging around on the sand, surface level Christianity. And so James is saying, be doers of the word, not only hearers, deluding your own selves, as if it is a self-delusion to think that because I've heard the word, therefore I'm okay. Now, he goes on in James 1.25, but he who looks into the perfect law of freedom and continues, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. So again, he's saying that if you really do God's will, and I've said that that is not in doing works, but in, in character transformation, etc., then you'll be blessed. God will give you the strength to be that person that you would like to be. He who looks into the perfect law of freedom. I want to suggest that because the, the illusion of the Sermon on the Mount is so clear, uh, and it's so often in James, I want to suggest that the perfect law of freedom is a technical term that he was using for the, the Sermon on the Mount. I started off in, when we talked about Matthew 5 in saying that the Sermon on the Mount is presented by Jesus up a mountain with his disciples. It's presented by him as like a, a new law, a new law of Moses. And then he returns from the mountain, the multitudes, etc., just as Moses did. And yet it's not the law of bondage. It is the law of freedom. And why the perfect law, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what he's saying is, don't read the Sermon on the Mount. Look into the perfect law of freedom and forget it. But do it. Be it. And you will be blessed in what you do. Don't look into it like a mirror and uh, see the picture and then just forget it. But continue in it. Now he says, I will liken him to the man who built his house upon the rock. Now, verse 27 talks about how the rain descended, the floods came, and great was the fall of it, etc. It's as if at the day of judgment, the truth of this parable will be finally uh, apparent. Paul says that the day of judgment shall declare each man's building work, how we have each built. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. To whom shall the day of judgment declare how a man has built? Not to God, not to Jesus, because they know the end from the beginning in that sense. And the day of judgment is not for them to gather information. To whom shall it be declared? It shall be declared to us and to those who are watching, who are observing. So many of the parables of judgment say the kingdom of heaven will be likened in the future unto the wise and foolish girls, for example like these wise and foolish builders. So the truth of all this will be visibly seen at the Day of Judgment, but the point is that we should grasp and perceive that now. That, I think, is, is the idea. That judgment is not uh, a mystery, because God's judgments are manifest now, and his word is called, so often in the Psalms, his judgment. So then we are built up, First of Peter 2, verse 5, a spiritual house. So our building on this rock is confirmed and is helped by God. 
if you want to do his will, if you ask anything in order to fulfill his will, we saw that, catter his will in First John, he will do this for us. Now, both these men apparently made progress. They apparently had some forward movement in their lives. And, of course, life is a journey, one way or the other, but we are all moving. Uh, and I think that the, the sensation of movement uh, can uh, lead us to the idea that somehow I'm getting somewhere, but not necessarily. That rock was Christ, First Corinthians 10, verse 4. He is the, the rock or the stone that the builders rejected, First Peter 2, verse 8. It's all the same word. Now, the question is, what or who is your dominant desire? Are you really getting down to this, this rock and, and doing that and being him? Where is your foundation? A lot of people, if you ask them, what is your dominant desire? They really don't have a clue. Oh, to uh, get this career for me or for my kids, to marry this person, to um, uh, do this or, or that or the other, um, to maybe uh, overcome a certain health issue or whatever. But all those things come and they go. And yet our dominant desire, our dominant desire is not any of those things. It is to be as him and to be him. So then, the rain descended and the floods came. This is clearly an allusion, I think, to, uh, to Noah uh, and how the day of judgment is going to shake us, absolutely shake us uh, to the core, that everything will then be tested and great will be the fall of the house, the, uh, of those who have only uh, on the surface done all these things. The tragedy of rejection will be so great. And I think that he ends his uh, he ends his, his sermon here with that picture. Great was the fall of it. It's a, it's a tragedy. And I think he, he does that not as a negative psychology to leave us somehow, you know, on a bad note, threatening us, but because he foresaw how many people would fall away. He foresaw that. And so in great sadness, he, he just has to bring that before us. To say, you know what, I'm going to die for you, I'm going to achieve this great salvation for you. All you've got to do is say yes, but you know, so many are not going to take it. That is not, I don't think, negative psychology. In any case, it's not for us to argue back with the Lord as to what methods he uses uh, to, to teach us. That is the point he leads, leaves us with. And I think that's why after that, when he sort of, the curtain goes, goes down, the curtain goes down with, with him saying that, the people are amazed that he has got such authority. Because the power of eternity, the issues of eternal life and eternal death, the sense of the future that we might miss, are there in his words and in his person. And people were amazed at that authority. And we also should be as well, in the sense that um, we see quite clearly that 
there is a wonderful future ahead. And if we want to be there, that man who wants to do his will will be blessed and will be empowered and will be enabled to get there in the end. And yet, unfortunately, so many will not. And that is the tragedy. And that's why he ends it by saying, look, great shall be the fall of it. So then we are not of them that draw back, but of them who believe to the saving of the soul. Thank you.